Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Future of XYZ. I have uh, such an honor of introducing Molly Baldwin. Molly, welcome to the Future of XYZ. Thank you. Thank you for including us. I said it's it's just really tremendous honor, as I've just said. I, we're going to be talking about the future of urban violence, a subject that you know a lot about as the founder and CEO of Roca. Uh, Roca, of course, being uh, an organization based in the Boston area, but now serving in almost three states, um, five cities plus Baltimore, Maryland, and soon to be Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, it's an organization really committed to uh, helping disengage and disenfranchise young people uh, move out of violence and poverty, uh, get out of the criminal justice system, and it has really some unique aspects to it. You guys have won multiple awards. Um, I know that uh, you received the Life Saving Service Award from the Gifford Law Center this year. You, of course, have an honorary doctorate from Salem State University in addition to your degree from University of Massachusetts. And Roca was founded in 1988. Yes, it was. So you've been doing this hard work for 33 years, which is uh, no small feat, especially as we start to discuss the future of urban violence. So again, Molly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. So let's just start with the basics. I mean, when we're talking about the future of urban violence, it, what is urban violence in the context of your work, especially? So when, you know, in terms of kind of what the context that we know and, and always are seeking to understand is really focused on young people and young adults at the center of urban violence. And, you know, uh, it's something that sort of changes over time for lots of different reasons, but we're particularly focused um, on working with young people 16 to 24, who are most likely to be shot or to shoot and to be highly engaged in violence in cities and who also don't, they're not, they're not going to programs, they're not going to go to a job, they're not going to go to a training program, can't pay them to go to school, they're just sort of at a different place. And, and what we've learned, we've learned a lot over the years, and we, Lisa, we always have a lot more to learn. And unfortunately, what's going on in the country is in many cities across the nation, we're seeing a rise in um, non-fatal shootings and murders uh, among young people and people actually slightly older. There's an increase in, in actually 25 to 40 year olds. Um, I mean, you know, you talk about 33 years and uh, some more years before that work, it sort of means I'm old, but um, you know, what, 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 what we've seen over time, you know, there was a time where, um, you know, violence in communities were structured around um, drug dealing or structured gangs. There was some structure. There was a code on the street. There were sort of rules you followed and rules you didn't and expectations, um, much of which we've seen erode over the years. Obviously, you know, different periods of different kinds of drug trade, whether it was crack, you know, heroin, other things sort of hitting the street have impacted at different times. In the past few years, actually prior to the pandemic, we started to sort of see the nature of violence change again. And although there are some places where there are highly structured gangs and leadership that sort of calls the shots, if you will, excuse the play on the words, um, 
we're seeing uh, violence uh, being quite interpersonal, happening, happening almost instantaneously between people. And we're seeing a change in sort of location, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and also there's just an enormous and tragic amount of guns available. I mean, the availability of guns, how easy it is for young people to go get guns or anybody to get guns has just increased and increased in this nation where there were periods where that wasn't the case. Um, it tends to historically been among sort of groups of like people, not, not all the time. Obviously people are, any person dying through gunshots and murder is unacceptable. I wish we could all live in a very different world. Um, but a lot of it's very focused among sort of similar groups of young people. What we've seen over the past few years also in this sort of instantaneous is that people at the center of urban violence, very traumatized and reacting out of their, if you will, the bottom brain, which I'll explain in a minute. It's highly mobile because of uh, social media is impacting and people can see where people are, people can move around a lot. Um, and there really aren't the sort of structures of leaders who can sort of stop things or, or literally put an end to stuff, although there are some in some places. So as we've come to understand over the years, the brain science and trauma, and, and please forgive me, those of you who are listening who know much more than I do, but I, I'm going to do a very simple version of understanding trauma in the brain because it's about all I can remember, but I think it works. If you kind of do a one, two, three part of your brain, you know, the brain stem is this back part of our brain and it's our core functions. It's, you know, you wake up in the morning, hopefully you're breathing. You don't have to tell yourself to breathe. Your heart is pumping and those things are happening. Then there's the middle brain, which I'll come back to. There's kind of a lot going on there, the limbic system. And there's all these pieces in there and it's emotions and memory. It's our protective, like fight, flight, or freeze. It's, um, it's our sort of pleasure. It's our pain. It's a lot of stuff's going on there. And then the third part is this front. It's the prefrontal cortex where you literally learn executive functioning, how to think, how to make decisions, how to weigh things out. So a couple of things have, you know, really come to the forefront over the past couple of years. And, and again, it's a little bit of a long explanation, but we think it sort of helps frame what we think, what we understand to be going on, right? We've now, we used to think like if your brain, if you didn't, you had to change your brain by the time you're three or else there's nothing else you can do and you're stuck with who you are. So we've now learned you can change your brain at any time, which is great news being older. Um, so, yeah. Secondly, there are three periods where your brain has more ability to change, more what they call elasticity and plasticity. The first we sort of all are familiar with, either zero to three or zero to five, depending on who you're listening to. Interesting, the late teens into early adolescence, we now understand that your brain really isn't fully formed and your ability to kind of have executive functioning until you're 25. And then the third period is right after you have a baby. And if you think about those of you who are parents, great parents, love your kid, you have this brilliant teenager, and you know, you know, they're sort of ending high school, going to college, and they are brilliant and they're smart and they're riveting, and you're so proud of them, and they do this crazy thing, and you're like, what is the matter with my kid? They're out of their mind. Well, actually, the way the brain develops, they're technically out of their mind. They're not fully into that prefrontal cortex where you can make decisions. The next piece, we're going to come back to this middle brain again in a minute, is that what we think, feel, and do are related, 
but they are three different things. Mm. And we understand now that this middle part, this limbic system, it holds our emotions. It records memory. It, we talked about the sensation, the pleasure, the pain. It also, if you are in a dangerous situation, either momentarily or long-term, it kind of lives in this state of hypervigilance. And again, I, I completely understand this is very sort of understated. It's a sort of simple version, but just to understand it. And it's constantly, that brain is constantly scanning. And if you're highly traumatized and have had not had, and you're suffering from racism, from poverty, from violence in your community, all these things that you, have not, they're not your fault. They have nothing to do with, that's just where you are. But you stay in that middle part of the brain sort of to keep yourself alive, if you will. Yep. It makes it so you literally can't access the prefrontal cortex. You're in survival mode, basically, is what it is all the time. To totally in survival mode. So if you think about if, if I really think I'm, I'm not safe or I know I'm not safe, I'm stuck in this survival mode. So I'm not accessing the thinking part of my brain. The other thing that we, if you think about social media for a minute now, and this is a big change in urban violence, if somebody threatens to kill you, okay. If somebody threatens to kill you in social media, the platform itself is designed to pump it out and pump it out and pump it out. And that's impacting that, that brain, that survival brain, scanning for safety. Am I safe? I'm going to be okay. What am I doing? So we think that social media also is just fueling, you know, that, that sort of hurt part of the brain. You can't, we can't make the world better tonight. I wish we could, or today we can't, it's not about blaming people, but as we understand trauma and people getting caught, rightfully so, understandably so, in their survival brain, what do we think this is really impacting urban violence? So people feel threat, real or perceived, and they respond. Yeah. And so that that's really got us looking at what's going on differently. What what we what we've decided to do at Roca a long time ago was really spend a lot of time finding the young people who weren't responding to other programs. We do we work with young people over a long period of time, you know. And probably the most important thing we've really learned to do, uh, Lisa, is what behavioral health does. If you think about what you think, feel, and do, if you can help people understand that, and build an eight to twelve second pause between what you think or feel and what you do. That's how you get agency. And if you don't have that pause, you have no agency. I'm going to interject for a second, Molly, because I think what's what knowing the organization in the way that I do, you know, for almost 10 years now, you know, your model is so unique and it is focused on relentless outreach, allowing people to fail, right? It's not a one and done, like at all, because that's not realistic in these kind of traumatized communities and population that you're dealing with. This CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy that you're talking about is how you create these pauses, among other things that I want you to continue talking about. But over the 33 years, you've been collecting data on how this works. So right. you're not coming at this from some random, like, oh, I just had this awareness. How did you get to that place where you realized this brain? science is in fact the key to helping solve or at least intervening in urban violence at this stage. So a couple of things. First of all, I, I want to be clear too, like this, we, we think this is the route to agency. You, you, we, it's not about blaming people who are suffering from our systemic racism, right? It's not about 
saying you're bad because you're poor, right? And it's, 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 it just is. What the brain science does, I think, is liberates how to help people heal and have agency. You can't undo those things, but, but with agency, if you can take that, literally you're talking about an eight to 12 second pause between what you think, feel, and do, you then have a choice as opposed to a reactive choice. So what, what happened, you know, in a funny way, when we first started, we sort of understood this, but had kind of no language for it. And the world looked at lots of different things and we kept learning. But at some point, Lisa, we were sort of noticing that young people were making a lot of changes, huge privilege to be with them. It's pretty, you know, really stunning. And then something would kind of go south and we we're like, we're missing something here. And so as we began to understand about the stages of behavior change, as we began to learn about the brain science, it gave us a framework that just seemed more helpful, uh, more respectful, um, and more empowering, which was is, is our commitment. And so I think, you know, I, again, I know this funny theme about being old, um, but you know, you know, get old and people go, what do you wish you learned? I'm like, oh, I wish we knew this a long time ago. Right. I think all of us who've been around, you know, and I, there there are more people in the nation. I, I still think it's a small group. <laughs> there, there are a small group of us beginning to look at this. How do you give young people those skills to yeah. heal some of the hurt, you know, and to have, build those skills? We also were seeing from the what we, we use data to look at, you know, are we being helpful for young people? They had enough stuff, dumb stuff, not so helpful. You know, and it's not that you don't do things that aren't good, that's fine, but how do you really give people the tools so they can develop agency, which, and so we use that data to help us get better, you know, to partner with young people and to help us figure out what we're doing, because some of the things we did weren't helpful, and right. some are, and so we were sort of seeing people taking about two years to make any change, and the brain science says, well, actually, this late teen, early young adult you can change your brain, but it takes about two years. And so um, we keep trying to learn more. What is the most helpful thing that we can do, you know, in partnership with these young people so that they have the tools and the agency that they so desperately need and, and, and deserve? And, and you're dealing with, as you said, 16 to 24 year olds, largely men, but you also have a young mothers program, of course, yep. because the family dynamic within these mm -hmm. communities is part of what fuels this cycle of poverty uh, and, and, and involvement in the criminal justice system and violence, frankly. I mean, when we think about this, so, I mean, if I think about when I describe to someone what ROCA does, it's really, it's a way of reducing recidivism, addressing criminal justice, the, the inequalities or inequities, if you will, within the system, addressing trauma and violence, and ultimately setting these young people up for new opportunities. Trade, as you said, changing, giving them that eight to 12 second pause that gives them agency, getting them to think differently, but also um, equipping them as they go on with the program with tools and employment and, and experiences that can, can get them out of this urban violence. Is that a fair description of it? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you, I, you know, the fall, when was it? I guess the fall before the COVID hit in a 45 day period in Baltimore, I don't know, 79, 80 some young people, because it, it was still in startup phase, you know, in, you know, already in the program, people on the waiting list and people behind the wall and, in a 45-day period, five people were killed, eight were shot, 
and 10 were arrested with guns. Like, this is, you know, we don't have to accept this for our children in this nation. We just don't, and we shouldn't, and it's not okay. And I wish I could magically just get rid of the guns. That, that'd be helpful. Um, and I'm really clear that, that there are all these things, you know, racism, you know, economic, there are all these things at play. But I think those young people have a right to live and, and, and to live safely. And, and that's sort of, that's the road and, and that's the commitment, you know, and, and um, it, it, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. It's not like, here's this program. If we could just get young people to a program where they could succeed and it would get better, yeah. it just doesn't happen like that. You can't just sort of say, put the gun down. It doesn't go like that. No, and I think Molly, what you've, what you, your, your team, right, has always done, and you call them youth workers, among other things, is this relentless outreach. You know, these, mm -hmm. guys, these people who you're serving don't show up. They're not right. people who are used to being in systems and programs, and you're relentlessly reaching out to these people so that they can, in fact, stay alive and have a better opportunity. Right. But besides the outreach, besides the cognitive behavioral therapy and the adjustment to the brain science, there are other things that are needed. I mean, you need to partner with institutions and most especially the police, right, as system partners within this. Right. You need financing, right? And, and, and maybe perhaps most importantly, we need policy change. So what's kind of the hierarchy and prioritization as we think about the future of urban violence? Because there's only so much relentless outreach can right. do on an individualized basis. Like systemically, what can we do? And what, are you, what does Roca think is the future? Well, first of all, I think we have to understand what's going on more. And it's hard. There's no magic. You know, we have a lot of data and some things we do are more effective and some aren't. So how do we tell the truth about what that is and get better at it, right? How do we understand what really those young people who are sort of at the center who aren't responding are in a different place than young people who with some support and an opportunity could just thrive, right? So we want to differentiate that. And we have to believe it's possible anything and everything we can do to limit more guns. We have more guns than we have people in the country. We should be doing, period, end of discussion. 3D printed ones these days? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's terrifying. Like, cause, because if you're, if you're reactive and you have a deadly weapon, it's different. Um, I think also, you know, I, I, I think that we have to look at our systems and figure out like what's more effective. Like if people really don't need to be locked up, they shouldn't be locked up. Right, you need to have you know criminal justice systems that are functioning. On the other hand, if people need to not be able to hurt other people, you have to be able to deal that that too. And I I think I think part of the policy thing has got to be what do we have to what can we do that is safe and different and fair, right? I don't think it's a simple discussion, and unfortunately, I don't think we can call change into existence. I I, I wish we could. Um, I certainly can. I mean, that, and I know that's not my job. Other people need to keep calling that into existence loud and clear and please keep going. It's awesome. Um, but, the, but the question is, I mean, we're just sort of always struggling with what can we do that's different mm -hmm. that, you know, brings safety that is more just, um, and that's appropriate to what's going on. And I think we have to, it's interesting we met with some partners in a city and they're you know worried about younger kids committing crimes and stealing cars there's an increase of carjacking going on in different places 
you know, and we, we politely said, well, gee, could you just show us your data this year? Well, their biggest problem was actually 25, 35 year olds. That, that's a different issue than a 15 year old, right? Um, you know, what do, we, what do we do there? And how is it, whether we're running an organization, whether we're running an institution, that we do things that matter and that don't cause more harm and that we stay in that process to do that. I mean, I think that's what, I think that's what we have to kind of push into existence, you know, in our, in our work with young mothers, which is, um, you know, pretty extraordinary. I, I mean, I, I just don't, some, both the young women, young men, I don't even understand how they get up in the morning, given all the things they've been through. We happen to, you know, know a lot of young mothers who get separated from their kids or have the system involved with them, but what they didn't have was the resources to be the parents they wanted to be. And so it became really important for us to understand, well, which group of parents are we more helpful for than not? Secondly, how do we give them the tools? Um, so in one level in COVID, the rate of, you know, filings with children's services across the country went up a lot due to domestic violence, but our team was able to help like 25 young mothers close their cases and several young mothers get their children back who've been completely separated from them. And so, you know, what we hope to do is find company everywhere, constantly looking for good company and good teachers that we get better at showing up for this group. Again, the group that doesn't show up at the other places, we, we don't know how to do those other things. They're awesome organizations doing that and how we work with the partners who are connected, you know, those young people, the center of urban violence are connecting to police and probation and corrections more than they are off in other places. So how is it we can do this differently? And I and 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 you have to believe we can and we can. And, I, and I, what I love about that, besides the hopefulness, of course, because that's you, I don't think you could have been doing this for 33 years if you didn't have that hope on a daily basis, Molly. I, I, I know enough to know that much and it's incredibly inspiring. You know, but I also think that what you're describing here is it's not even about changing systems partners and police and relationships and policy. It's really about identifying what this population needs on an evolutionary basis, because of course, as you've just described, things happen, social media comes up, there's yeah. a you know, distribution of power within their guns and whatever. As it evolves, you stay attuned to the individual person's needs. And that means finding the systems partners, working with probation, working with the police on the street, working with the beat, working with policymakers to try to address really is criminal justice reform in some ways, but it's really about being human and allowing opportunities, you say, and finding agency for these people who don't have it. And I, I think, Lisa, as an organization, like as an individual, like, you know, you think about the young people we know who suffered so much. What an extraordinary privilege to know them, to be able to walk with them, to try in some small way to create an opportunity for them to have a set of tools for more personal agency and, 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 and to be able to live, right? You know, um, and it's, a, it's sort of a, it's a sacred responsibility um, and a daunting one and a beautiful one. And it's one that I don't know. I believe you've got to wake up every day and figure out how you get better. You've got to be better in the day before because otherwise you're just bringing more, I don't know. You're just bringing more stuff they don't need and they don't need that. Absolutely. And as we, as we look at this, I, I have two final wrapping questions. 
is this, we're talking a lot, I mean, you operate in Baltimore, you operate, you started in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is right outside Boston, you're now in multiple cities in, in, in the Massachusetts area, about to open Hartford, as we said. However, is this, a, is this urban violence that we're describing a uniquely American problem? Or is this, do you think that there is a, a model, a ROCA-like model, you know, that is just human and can be applied to everything? Or what, what would you say about, you know, someone who's listening in, you know, Belgium or in, you know, South Africa? Well, I, it's, it's an interesting question you've asked here, Lisa. Um, I just think as, a, as, as human beings, we're in trouble. I just think the level of violence, um, the racial issues across the world, the imbalance of, you know, poverty and those who have and those who don't, not, you know, money, which has just been any progress we were making just got decimated during COVID, the availability of guns. Unfortunately, I think it's in a lot of places. Yeah. All, all over, you know, with rare exception. I, I believe the core of what we do is very human. How you implement that, how you understand and heal, hear and listen to what people are struggling with is very different, right? Um, you know, so there are things that are way in which we are in Springfield, a little different than Baltimore, you know, and the uh, issues of the young mothers and Chelsea and East Boston have a little bit difference than Hartford. So you, you have to be very respectful of that, but the core of it is um, I think this human place that we have a lot of young people that we've kind of written off. We've pushed so far to the side yeah. that we don't want to talk about that it's painful and it's hard. There's nothing easy about talking about how do you help a group of young people who are literally killing each other? In Baltimore, it is more than a murder a day and three non-fatal shootings a day. It's gone up. Like it, we we shouldn't be doing this. No. And, and no. yeah, here we are. So the, this it's not a fun discussion, you know, but it's a critical one. It's how do you help young women who you know can succeed as parents succeed? They've never right. been given the tools or support. But it's not an easy thing. It's not like go to this class and it's all set. And so, what, can, what can Molly? I mean, just in closing, I mean, listeners and viewers, instead, of, you know, you, you have hope. You do this work every day. Your team, yeah. you inspire them to do it every day. You inspire police to work with you. You inspire politicians to work with you. You inspire investors and financiers and states to invest, right? So, what can the people who are listening and watching do to support your mission, really, of helping young people deal with violence and trauma? To, as you say stay alive long enough, long enough to choose to live? I mean, first of all, we have to believe it's possible. And if we're grownups, that's our job. Whether we understand it, whether we like it or not, we're responsible for our children. I, I just fundamentally believe that. Um, I, I, I hope that what could come out of these sort of painful, you know, realities of COVID is like slamming on the world in different ways in different places is a understanding of how much we need each other and how we can help each other, you know? And if you're, you know, not everybody wants to, but if you can stand in the middle of the hard stuff or help with the hardest stuff, it's really important. It, it, there are easier things to do. There are easier things to support, you know, and no judgment, but, you know, you know, standing in the hard stuff to help figure out what to do is, is it's the only, we, we're, only we can get ourselves out of where we are. 
Molly, I, I would love to keep talking. I could always speak to you forever. It is so inspiring. And thank you for sharing your perspective on the future of urban violence and all the amazing work that you and your team at Roker are doing for these uh, amazing young people who, who do pull themselves up and out. Thank you so much. And everyone listening, thanks for tuning in to Future of XYZ this week. Uh, you know that if you're not already subscribed on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or Amazon or wherever you get your podcast, do so. Leave us a five-star review and follow Future of XYZ on Instagram. We look forward to seeing you next week. Molly, again, thank you. And uh, everyone visit roca.org, uh, rocainc.org um, to learn more about the amazing work that Molly and her team are doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to The Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.